My friends, thank you once again for joining me on the Shema podcast. You guys have probably seen in the news this whole thing that came out a few months ago where this engineer at Google who was working on their AI project proclaimed that the AI had become self-aware, had become conscious. Now, this, of course, is a topic, an idea that has fueled sci-fi movies for decades. I remember growing up in the 80s watching The Terminator, The Matrix, many more, including just recently the movie series Westworld. But this begs the question, is this even possible? What is intelligence? What makes us self-aware? What gives us consciousness? What gives us our free will? Is this something that can be programmed into a computer? I decided I need to bring on the right rabbi for this one. We needed our own Terminator. Someone sent to us in this present time from the world of souls. Designed through a lifetime of absorbing the technology of Torah and here to terminate falsehood from the world. That rabbi, my friends, is once again our dear friend, Rabbi Busco, the average rabbi, to answer these questions for us. I'll be back. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Busco, thank you for coming back on the show again. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be back. All right. Well, this was a topic that I knew would be interesting and allow us to explore some very lofty concepts. I knew you were the rabbi to bring on and help us get a better understanding on intelligence, consciousness, what it means to be self-aware. So I'll let you just sort of take over. You know, the question at hand, how would you address, you know, first maybe starting off with what the Torah says or the components of our minds, what makes us think, what makes us, gives us consciousness, our memory. Sure. Yeah. The, the consciousness is, is something discussed at length. And what's really fascinating is that there are many facets of it and there are different levels of the intellect and the the intelligence, the consciousness, there are different words for it. Like they say, the Inuit population has many words for snow because that's their culture. Jews have lots of words for intelligence. Okay. We're going to, we'll discuss a little bit about that. Great. I should point out that in this subject, we're talking about the limitations of artificial intelligence. I've dabbled a little bit in computer science and software engineering, but I'm at best an amateur. And so my I have zero authority to speak on what's really happening with machine learning and artificial intelligence. What I do have experience with is what you said, is the Torah traditions that we have for what human consciousness is. Based on what we know about that, we can essentially determine that there is no construct that we can create that could possibly do what the human consciousness does, at least in its entirety. So in a nutshell, there's your answer. To start off with, I'd like to bring up a, a great argument made by an American philosopher. His name is John Searle. He's actually, he's alive today, 90 years old. I actually just read this recently that a few years ago, his status as Professor Emeritus of, I think it's Berkeley, was just revoked because for 
sexual harassment charges. So not a great role model, but uh, <laughs> but a very uh, a, a highly intelligent person, and it's a great argument nonetheless. And the argument is as follows: He supposed, what if we could create some artificial intelligence program that could look like it's learning Chinese? So you give it all the tools for a Chinese vocabulary. People will put in input questions, and it'll output responses, and it learns patterns, and eventually it grows and quote unquote learns the language to the point where a Chinese it would pass the Turing test, right? A Chinese person, a native speaker of Chinese, would speak, communicate somehow with this program, and it would feel like they're talking to another native speaker of Chinese. So let's say the program gets that advanced, where it's able to do that. So now the question becomes: Does has the program learned Chinese? Right? Does the computer know the language? And to illustrate the limitations of that, he says, well, "Let's swap the roles for a second. Instead of the program, let's put you in a room and give you the tools—pencil, paper, tons of books, fill it with books. Give you all the time in the world. Let's near infinite time." And people will feed in Chinese characters, and you'll look at these characters, and then look up a reference book that if these characters come in, then these characters should go out. And eventually, you get to the point where you don't need this reference book anymore, and you can output all the right characters, and you know exactly how to respond, and, and, it, and it goes flawlessly. So, it, after all that, how much Chinese do you understand? I would think that's the whole idea of learning a language. Well, here's the thing: it was never translated into English. Here's how it worked. Okay. They give you characters. Now you don't recognize these characters at all. They're、oh, just you're not attaching meaning to the the, the the words that are created. That's exactly the point, right? You, let's really imagine this. You put you in a room. Do you, you read Chinese? No. No. Okay. So we you put you in a room. Okay. okay. And then give you a piece of paper that has Chinese characters on it. Now you have no idea what this means, and that's fine. You don't need to. We'll give you a book. That is an enormous book, and you can look up in this book these characters, match the characters, and then you'll find some sort of corresponding answer, right? And and it can get very very complicated. You recognize all these patterns, and you get to become a flawless expert in responding with the correct set of characters when you receive. Gotcha. So you're saying the the other person would be speaking with me. They would use a series of letters. Sounded out into a word, and although I wouldn't know the meaning of that word, I would know the sequence of letters and how to pronounce them to respond. From their perspective, you speak fluent Chinese, right? But how much Chinese do you actually know? Everything has been completely meaningless to you because, from your perspective, it's just patterns of characters. You don't, you haven't been able to internalize the true meaning of any of these words, and so therefore, that this is how he he distinguished. Two concepts. One is called soft AI and hard AI. And soft AI, I think, is what people relate to now, which is you know, what we would consider real artificial intelligence, where it mimics the fact that it can think, but it really can't. We we know that it can't. It's just it's following patterns that it's become you know more and more complicated. Whereas hard AI would be the concept of it actually developing sentience and thinking, and this. Thought experiment: The Chinese room is used to illustrate how hard AI is really impossible because there's always going to be a barrier there called meaning. So this is one of the levels of the consciousness that's referred to in Jewish teaching. So you've probably heard the term Chabad before. Yes, 
right? It's more than just a sect of Orthodox Judaism. It is an acronym to describe the three top levels of the human, which is three levels of the intellect, and they stand for Chachma, Bina, and Das. Okay, Chachma, Bina, and Das. They all could be translated in some way of knowledge, understanding, consciousness. In fact, respectively, those would be good definitions for each of them. Chachma would be knowledge of a skill. Bina would be more like understanding. And Das is the awareness of the consciousness. We're going to get more into what each of those mean. Okay, so Chachma, you're saying, is knowledge. It could be knowledge, and but knowledge means more than just facts. It could be a skill, the fact that you can ride a bike, an ability, cleverness. All of these things fall within the realm of chachma. It's often translated as wisdom, colloquially. Okay, that's where I've seen it most. Right. But what it, what it really means is, is this. It has this connotation. And the truth is that a computer can have chachma. Because it could mimic all of those things. Your chachma is your ability to compute large numbers or to know how to balance on a skateboard or any, any of these things. And a robot, a computer can do all of those things. Okay. What the limitation is, is when we get to the next level, which is Bina. And we have a tradition that it's not just more intelligence. It's a completely new faculty of the mind, which does something different, which is comprehension. So that's Bina. It's a total different level. And that's what this Chinese room really illustrates is the, the limitations of a computer that it can't move beyond Chachma into Bina. It, it sticks there. So Bina is your understanding. And Das, the third level, is uh, really it's integration. Okay. Explain. Sure. There's a principle generally in the Torah where if you want to know what a word means in its core meaning, its most root meaning. You look, the first time it's used in the Chumash, in the Torah, that will be its core root meaning. So do you know where the first time the word das, or at least some conjugation of it is in the Torah? Can you guess? Bereshis in the discussion of the, the, the tree of good and evil, I would assume. That is the word that's used there. It is the word das. However, it's not the first time it's used. There's an, there's an earlier use of this word. And it's when Adam and Eve were created, Adam and Chava. And after they were created, they had a relationship. And Adam knew Eve. Right? Right. Adam yada es Chava. He knew her. In the, in, it was like people say in the biblical sense. But here's the thing. The Torah, it's true the Torah uses clean language, but there's no such thing as a euphemism completely. If, a, if the Torah uses a word, it means it. It's true 100%. Right. So when the Torah says that Adam knew her, it means it's that word of knowledge on the truest level possible. And what it really means is integration. That Adam and Eve joined their identities on a fundamental level. They became integrated. On a physical level, it's that act of intimacy that we're familiar with. But it was much deeper than that, that on a spiritual level, on a on a root level of identity, they merged together and integrated as one. Okay, so that's that's really what this word das means is integration. So what does that really mean for things that you know? I mean, what is that practically in, in terms of your consciousness? Things that you know, let, let's talk chachma. Let's start back in the beginning. We can build up. Okay. Let's say you know, well, we've talked about China before. You know that Beijing is the capital of China, right? It's a, it's a fact that you know. Yes. It's possible for you to not know that fact. 
Sure. Right? You happen to know it, but it's not essential to your identity. It's just something that you, you happen to know. If that in right. piece of information would be deleted from your knowledge, you wouldn't really fundamentally change as a person. Correct. Something that you know with your DAS is you. It makes up your consciousness. It makes up your thinking identity. Okay. We'll, we'll, let's take it even further. Let's, okay, let's back up again. Chachma. What's something that you can know with Chachma? You ever had an experience in, let's say, college or something like that, high school? You learn an equation for something? Yes. And at first glance, it's a bunch of variables and numbers and constants. and Right. You memorize the quadratic equation. And then you just knew to plug, how to plug the numbers in to get the answer. Right. You know that it works because you keep getting the right answer. Right. I had no idea what I was doing. Exactly. Okay. That's called Chachma. You know this equation. You know that it works. And you use it. But you don't understand why it works. Right. So that, that's something that you know with your Chachma, but you're lacking Bina. You're lacking the understanding. And then Bina is, what, is this like euphoric moment of clarity where all of a sudden it snaps and everything fits into place and you kind of develop this mental picture of like, oh, that makes sense. When you like, when you really get it at that point, there's a comprehension. There's an understanding of why things work the way they do. So that's when you've moved from Chachma into Bina. Das is when you know something so deeply that it becomes one with who you are. It's an integrated knowledge with you. So that's a little bit harder when it comes to an equation and calculus of how someone, maybe if someone's so devoted to mathematics that they couldn't imagine their life otherwise. But let's, let's give a more classic example of, of something that you would know with Das. You have a daughter, Baruch Hashem. You love your daughter? Absolutely. How do you know? I just do. You told me that you love your daughter. Yes. I imagine that means that you know that because you answered. I do know that. Right. Correct. Oh, you know that you love your Yes. How do you know? Because it, it's just something inherent. But you're right. There's no, there would be no way for me to explain how I know. Right. There are some days when I may be asking, why do you know that? <laughs> Since she's become a teenager. But no, you're just right. It's, you just, there, there'd be no way to answer that question. There's no, right. It's, it's not just because... You can't prove it to me. You can't prove it to yourself. There is no proof. There's no logical argument. You know that you love your daughter because that's part of who you are. Right. It's just something that you experience as part of your existence. It's integrated with who you are. On a deeper level, right, we get to the, to the thing that you know on the deepest level, which is that you are. This is uh, Rene Descartes, right? He, the French philosopher. Yes. He had this whole essay how, on epistemology. How can you know anything? How, how can we really trust any knowledge that we have? Is there anything that we can know with 100% certainty? And initially in his essay, he, he basically rules out anything that we know through sensory perception because we already have a precedent for things like dreams and hallucinations. So it's certainly possible that just like when I have a dream and I can, it seems like I can see and hear and touch things. And then I wake up and I realize that it wasn't real. Maybe this entire world is some version of a dream and, and it's not real. It could be some construct that's being invented. So fine that anything like that's out. Then he says, what about logic? Logic's inherently true, right? Two plus two equals four is still true. Right. Whether or not I'm dreaming. But then he says, but that also you might not know for 100%. Because although it appears to make sense to you, 
it could be, in his words, some demon that's manipulating your consciousness to make you think that it makes sense, but really it's not true. But it's verifiable. It's verifiable to you, right? It makes sense to you. But it could be that it only adds up from your own perspective, but maybe your perspective is being manipulated. So, you know, we don't live like this, obviously. But this is a, an interesting thought experiment. What, what can you know with 100% certainty? And his conclusion is that even if all of that's true, even if everything you know is false because you're being manipulated, there still must be a you to be manipulated. He has this famous line. He said in French, je pense donc je suis. I think, therefore I am. What does that mean? The, the fact that I am conscious means that I exist. But that's not a logical proof because really you could boil that down to, I know I exist because I know I exist. And this is, a, this is essentially what he was getting to, is that the only thing that you can know on the truest level is things that you have with your das. It's integrated with who you are. I know I'm me because my knowledge of myself is one with who I am. Does that make sense? Yes. So das can go beyond that. Das can include other things that we experience on the level of the identity, like people that we love and the character that we exhibit, and ideally, Torah. There's a, con- there's a, a phrase that's used, Das Torah, that you, we, we seek advice from scholars that have Das Torah. And what that really means is not someone that has studied a lot of Talmud, so they have lots of information, they can connect a lot of dots, but it's someone that has integrated Torah wisdom with who they are, and so that they're inherent consciousness has been fused with the tr- the essence of truth itself and that person you can ask their opinion on something and you're a lot more guaranteed to get something accurate right and advisable than someone otherwise okay because their opinion actually is an extension of the torah that they've integrated within them so these are the three levels we have chachma bina and das would you like to look at them from another perspective sure there are certain senses that the human being has. And two of them are primary in terms of our ability to process the world. That's vision and hearing. Vision and hearing each respectively parallel these first two levels, Chachma and Bina. So Chachma relates to vision and Bina understanding relates to hearing. And what's really fascinating is that you can, you can really see it. No pun intended. You can, you can really see it. I'll give you an example. Okay. Chachma is knowledge that you have directly. There's no, there's no piecing anything together. If you learn a piece of information, it's just there. It's, part of, it, it's now part of your skill set. It's something that you know. I can teach you that Beijing is the capital of China, and now you just know it. You're, you're able to capture everything at once, in totality. Exactly. Whereas hearing, what hearing is, is you can't capture anything at once. While I'm speaking, as I'm speaking, at any one given moment, you're only hearing some unintelligible sound. It's only after I finish the word that you put the pieces together and retroactively build up some sort of comprehension, right? Key word there, meaning to the words that I've been, that I've been putting together over right. time. So in another sense, chachma or vision has to do with generalities, totalities, and bina and hearing has to do with details on a very specific level. So for example, you and I are sitting in this room now, but the listeners at home or in your car, 
you don't see this room. You have no idea what's going on here. So for us, you and me, Dan, all we have to do is open our eyes. And we got the whole picture. We see everything in the room. If you want to know the truth of this room, if you're here, you got it right away, instantaneously. But what if you, listening to this podcast, want to know what's in the room? What's the truth of this room? How do you get knowledge of this room? So what we could do, if we wanted to extend this podcast out, we could give every detail of every single thing that's in this room, describe every piece of furniture, the color of everything, all the dimensions. We, I mean, it might take practically forever, but we could describe literally every single detail of the physical makeup of this room. And it would probably be the lowest retention ratio of listenership ever, but... It would prove a point. <laughs> After all of that, you would then, someone listening to that wouldn't be able to see it, have, has never seen it, but would have all of the tools necessary to know what's in the room. Now, how does that person truly grasp and gain a knowledge that's equivalent to someone that was sitting here? That's through the faculty of DAS. That's through integration. So integration works on multiple levels. Up until now, we've been talking about the integration of DAS in terms of integrating knowledge with one's own identity. But integration also means integrating Chachma and Bina itself. Let's explain what that means. Okay. When I describe this room and you hear all of the details, what you'll probably naturally do is try to develop a mental picture. Correct. Right. And so you're tr- what you're trying to do is recreate Chachma through the Bina fusing them together, essentially. So the Bina is the understanding, the details, getting all of those little specific details. And then you collect it all together. And you have it. You have the whole picture here. You can understand everything that's in there. But if you want to see the room, quote unquote, you'll have to build a picture in your mind based on your understanding, based on that Bina. And from there, you can replicate Chachma. So check this out. This is cool. The Talmud says, well, who do you think is, is greater, a prophet or a scholar? The answer is a scholar. Their answer is a scholar. You knew the answer already. I did. Uh, you're cheating. It was Hakma. It wasn't Das. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Teach me the Das. The, the Talmud says, Chacham Adif Minavi. A scholar is preferable to a prophet. Why? So what's interesting is that a prophet, the word for prophet in Hebrew that we use most often is Navi. However, there's another word that's used for prophet in ancient Hebrew. It's used sometimes in Tanakh and uh, in Aramaic, which is a chose, chazi, which means a seer. And that's very intentional, that word, vision. It's on the level of chachma. What the concept of a prophet is, is that they've elevated themselves to a point where they directly experience some element of truth, which would otherwise be concealed from within this world. Okay. It's always visions as you said right it's they have uh some sort of quote-unquote vision now they're not actually literally seeing anything with light right but what they are is they're directly perceiving something which is what we call vision the way they describe it sounds like a picture some sounds like something that you could see but they're when they're describing angels part of the um Part of the basic philosophy of Judaism is that angels are not physical entities at all. They have no body. So you can't see an angel. It's impossible. There's no physicality to them. And yet we have Yechezkel, Ezekiel, describing what these angels, quote unquote, look like. 
But that's all an analogy. It has to be an analogy because what's really happening, what he's describing is the perception of what they are, but it's not true physical vision. But this is what a prophet's doing. He's directly perceiving a reality which would be otherwise concealed. It's like if a person, it's like if most people in a city would be blind and they've never seen the difference between red or blue or have any concept of what a color is. And then someone with eyes is trying to describe the difference between red and blue to these people. He just has a, he has a, a level of perception that's just concealed, that's beyond what other people are capable of perceiving. It is impossible. Now, that's what a prophet does. They, they're elevated to that point. A scholar does not have a direct perception of these things. A scholar takes information that's been given to us. Information is not a great word. It takes Torah. Right? It takes what we've been given through the Torah, the wisdom of the Torah, and through breaking it down with tremendous rigor and analyzing all of the details, which is what Talmud is all about. It's little nitty-gritty details, which seems petty, but this is what it's for. You break down all of these details and you put it all together in your mind and you develop a quote-unquote mental image of truth. And theoretically, a person that has enough Das Torah where they've integrated all of the Bina, the understanding of Torah, specifically the oral Torah, and then the deeper secrets of it, they can, using their Das, Das Torah, somewhat recreate what a prophet would experience. Now, why would that be better than a prophet? Let's give an example. Let's say you, what's a city you always wanted to visit? Always wanted to go to Tokyo. Sure. Okay. So let's say you go to Tokyo and you get in a cab. And when you get there, you have a smartphone, obviously. You're a modern man. And so you pull out your smartphone. You have Google Maps or Waze, whatever you use. And you pull up wherever you're at from your hotel. And you see on the map, let's say the bar that you want to go to, to, to meet your client. Okay. Yeah. So you're sitting in the back of this cab. You pull this up. And you see with 100% clarity what the streets look like, exactly how to get there the whole layout of the city. It's all right there in front of you instantaneously. This cab driver, he's got to be like 150 years old, okay? He's been driving these streets longer than you've been alive. He knows them better than the back of his hand. Now, who would you say knows the streets of Tokyo better? You or him? Uh, Of course, him. But you're looking at it. You can see it right there. But it doesn't matter. His mental map is integrated with who he is, with his consciousness. He has das of the city. You're both, you both have the same level of knowledge practically, right? Neither of you will make a mistake in terms of where it is. You both know exactly where to go, but his knowledge is internal. It's coming from him and your knowledge is external. You're looking at the screen, take away the screen. You have no idea what's going on, but for him, it's part of his identity. It's his consciousness. So in that way, a scholar is greater than a prophet because they've taken Bina, used Das to recreate Chachma. Okay. Now that we understand that process, there's a Mishnah, a teaching in the Gemara, the Tractate of Chagiga. The second chapter of this tractate is, it's a little bit strange. It seems out of place, but somehow randomly in the second chapter here, you have a whole chapter about Kabbalah and mysticism. And uh, it seem, like it doesn't seem to have any relevance to the, to the other chapters. I'm sure there is. It's overtly Kabbalah right there in the... Pretty much. Well, at least it's talking about Kabbalah, about the study of Kabbalah. Okay. And 
the Mishnah, this teaching states that there are three things. We're not going to go in depth into you know, breaking this down. Um, just a little part of it that's relevant to what we've been talking about. There are three areas of Kabbalah that are their primary. The first two are the most well-known, which is Misa Merkava, which is, as we alluded to before, the the prophecies of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel, describing the chariot of God. And this is the the essence of how we relate to God as infinite as the, the whole structure of his being from our perspective. Next is Mysiboratius, which is essentially how the world operates and how the world was created and the different levels of realms and how energy is passed from one to the next. And there's that area of Kabbalah. And then there's another area of Kabbalah about relationships, uh, relationships between things. And it manifests in terms of forbidden sexual relationships, which is very interesting, but that's just the outermost layer. But it's, it's truly, it's deep Kabbalah. Now, the Mishnah says these three things, you should not teach them in public. The third one that I mentioned with relationships that you shouldn't teach to two or more people because they could be distracted. Mysiboratius, about the understanding of the universe, you should not teach to more than one individual. And Mysimrakava, the highest level of Kabbalah, the mission is that you shouldn't even teach to one individual unless, here, here's how the mission says it, which if we translate that means unless he's a wise person and understands from his own knowledge, which if you take it at first glance, it sounds like he's got to be able to piece things together himself and you can't overtly reveal anything. You kind of hint around it and he'll put it together on his own. Gotcha. But look at the words that the mission is using. Ela imkain chacham, he must be a chacham, that's chachma, who mevin and understands, mevin comes from the word bina, midaito, from his das. He is a chacham who has understood through his das, right? So he's used his bina, he's used his das to convert his bina into chachma. This is everything we've been talking about. Right, exactly. So that's the formula right there in the Talmud telling you how to achieve this highest levels of understanding of reality. So you're saying that basically what to break it down is that real, the, the highest level of intelligence is not seeing something and then breaking down and learning the details and integrating it, but it's going in the reverse course. You know something more by getting all the details and then putting it together into a vision that equates with Hakma. Right. And th- th- so this is all illustrating the limitations of anything that doesn't have human consciousness, because it all really begins with understanding, with comprehension. That's when anything becomes relevant. When you use that and then integrate that information and use that to build a picture, but the whole process only starts with comprehension and understanding. And we see that that's, that's not possible for any kind of machine or anything that we could create. Right. So you're, you're basically saying that the whole idea of artificial intelligence, once you break down what is intelligence, uh, this idea of knowledge and comprehension, integration, Hakma being a DAS, is that a machine can only be programmed to recall Hakma. Essentially, yes. And, and to develop skill. You know, what would, so it can emulate something that might look like something that has acquired DAS. 
but it it can't truly have acquired that it integrated any sort of knowledge into its being. It's just a, a program. Okay, so this this engineer at Google who claims this software became self aware, and he would describe these conversations he was having with this machine. The machine was really just responding based off how it knows how to respond to the questions it was being asked. Just like you speak Chinese. Exactly. So we don't have to worry about AI taking over the planet. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, it, it can definitely become very, uh, very complex, I imagine. Again, you know, this is now we're getting into a territory that I, I have no authority to speak on. But none of what I said would preclude artificial intelligence from becoming very advanced. All of what I've been saying is that it it can't truly be the same as human intelligence in terms of consciousness and understanding. Yeah. And the, you know what? The fact that this is even a question is, is so sad. The fact that it's really a sign of our generation that we've become so diluted in our spirituality that we... We think of ourselves as robots. The fact that people could think that a robot could develop human consciousness, there's a good saying, I think it was maybe Rabbi Shemshim Raphael Hirsch. It was a German rabbi who said, when people start treating animals like people, they'll end up treating people like animals. We think that, I I drove by a veterinarian's clinic that said pets are people too, and it made me sick. (laughs) We, We think that we're doing something benevolence by elevating animals to the level of human nazis loved their animals they took very good care of them yes they they kissed their dogs and mm -hmm. when we elevate when we elevate animals to the level of humans that's only possible if you first imagine a human as being on the level of an animal because otherwise they're incomparable and so the same thing is happening here to even consider that a robot, a machine, could be the same as a human is a, a, such a tragic misunderstanding of what a human is. It also goes back to the conversation I had with Rabbi Nagel about the role of education. We were sort of, he was breaking apart like the culture of a university, you know, and he was saying like the lifestyle on a college campus, as you know, is pretty much an endeavor in satisfying all your your wildest pleasures it's partying you know sexual activity all those things and from his mind he was like they call that a place of wisdom right right of higher learning yeah of higher learning it's like it makes no sense it made me realize like the fact that i did think that was a place of higher learning shows what level I was on because and when you look at the world what they value is the people that have the most education even though they don't apply like you mentioned the the philosopher in the beginning here who was just fired from the college for sexual misconduct there's no integration of that it's more just having a bunch of information in their memory bank that they can use to impress people or Whatever it may be. Right. That's basically what you're, you're saying here. I may have brought this up earlier on a podcast that there was a professor, I believe, of Harvard. He was a professor of ethics. And he was, he was caught having an affair, cheating on his wife with one of his students who was underage. So statutory rape. So he was getting carted off to jail. And a reporter asked him the obvious 
contradiction here. Says, Wait a second, you're a professor of ethics at Harvard and you're doing this. How does, how does that add up? And he, he was just bewildered at the question. He said, if I would be a professor of mathematics, no one would have accused me of not being a triangle. <laughs> so what does is, what is one have to do with the other? This is my area of study and this is my personal life. Right. But it, it's not just that. It's not just that uh, divorcing of, of ethics and, you know, and the study of it in, in our personal lives. It's that the irony of us believing that we are so much more advanced in our generation because of our, our advancements in technology and our knowledge of, of science, of how the world operates. And that we think that now we're, such, we're, we're a much more enlightened culture. But the truth is that there's been a trade-off. It is true. We do have a much more advanced knowledge of physical science. But what's happened is, is I mean, does, does anyone really think that over the last 5,000 years, humans have evolved in terms of intelligence? That's absurd. I mean, even if you, if you subscribe to evolution theory, you know that that doesn't happen over the course of 5,000 years. Human beings are just as, at least just as intelligent in quote unquote ancient times as they are now. Right. And so what's happened is that there's been a shift in terms of the intellect of where is our intellect and where are we putting our knowledge and our consciousness? And whereas in ancient times, it was focused on beyond the physical and understanding of spiritual nature, things that are deeper, things that are of higher learning. In fact, even within the last few hundred years, the first college was Harvard, I believe the first university. There were two options for majoring in Harvard. You, you could either major in philosophy and minor in divinity or you could major in divinity and minor in philosophy. That's what higher learning was. Right now we have all these trade schools and it's all become university and you can study uh, you know, dance and all kinds of things. But that's what higher learning is, is thinking about things that are deeper. And that's been replaced with analyzing the most superficial layer of reality, which is the physical world. And so that, that's the irony, that we think that we're so much more advanced, but really we've become so superficial even even with our intelligence. And, and the hakma that we do possess is only there as long as we have access to our smartphone because our hakma has been exported into a machine anyway, so we don't even have to develop that much. That's right. Yeah, like looking at that map. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate that, Rabbi. I think this was a worthy discussion. I know this is sort of a sexy topic in the news right now. Is this possible? We've all grown up with these, these movies and the shows, and it's caught our fascination, but you're right. It really shows who we are as individuals, you know, what really defines us sort of, I think also creates some inspiration on where we need to focus our, our learning, what it really means to integrate what we know and transform ourselves, which is the, what we discuss regularly on this podcast, the transformative effect of Torah. And it should never be looked at as simply some type of academic exercise, right? How are we developing our consciousness on that? Just like when, when you work out, and you eat healthy, it changes your body. The way you think and the things that you use your mind for changes the nature of your mind. So developing a deeper level of consciousness is, is a goal here. We're developing God consciousness. Beautiful. Thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate you coming on once again. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. 
And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.